Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Sterling Robinson, National Account Representative at Altera Drilling Technologies. Sterling, thanks for coming on to the show, buddy. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, you loving? Are you? Have you? You haven't done a podcast before, have you? I have not. Well, fasten your seatbelt. We're in for a pretty good ride. So, speaking of actually seatbelts and rides, you and I share something in common, and that's fast cars. You're more of a Porsche guy. I'm obviously more of a BMW guy. So, have you always been into like racing and exotics and stuff? Because as long as we've known each other, which is now probably more than five years, you've always had a pretty, pretty sick ride, actually. So, <laughs> tell me, tell me a little bit about that. I don't know if I've actually even asked you about that. I actually grew up r- racing shifter carts. Oh, really? Uh, so, I actually the, the, partly paid for college with that and. And I did that till I was probably 23, and I kind of decided that I was I wasn't going to pay for it by doing it. Yeah, and I needed to go, you know, use my degree type thing. Okay. So, so I what are what are shifter cars? What, what like explain it? I always explain it as a go kart on steroids. Okay. So it's a they're CR125 dirt bike motors adapted for a go kart. So roughly 50 horsepower, roughly 400 pounds. I mean, zero 60s. I mean, three seconds or so. Yeah. So the quick, they can top, top out anywhere between 125 and like 140, depending on the track. Miles and how, per hour? Yeah. Holy smokes. So, I mean, like they really, yeah. like your go-karts at Track 21 and those places, they're not, they're made for safety more than anything else. Right. But the general concept is the same. It's just, but just like if you took a, a Camry and then you compared it to a, a race car or even like a, a GT3 or something like that. They're not. They function the same. You turn your steering wheel and they go. But the the difference from a shifter cart to a you know a cart at Track Twenty One is just a whole other world. So where do you race these? What do you call them? Stick? What are they called? Shifter carts. Shifter carts. Yeah. Where do you race these things? We race them. I mean, we raced all over the country with them, but, but all all the big tracks like Coda, MSR Houston, Eagles Canyon. I mean, those are just a few in Texas. The the ones in and then there's. There's some old there. There was a great track that actually turned into an oil field that was in Henderson, Texas, held by Tyler, Texas. Oh no way! Apparently, the world makes more money than karting. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, for now it does. Anyway, yeah, exactly. In ten years, there may not be anything. Yeah. Such hey, the oil hills will still be there, so the track will still be off. <laughs> nice. So yeah, so that. But we I mean we raced up in Portland at Portland International Raceway. We've raced at Buttonwillow Raceway. I mean, we raced all over the country. A lot of big tracks, but there's also a lot of small, like what they call sprints tracks that are usually under a mile. No way. But we're, yeah, so we did both the, the small and, and then the the road courses as well. Dude, that that would be a blast. Like go kart. Oh, anyone? Yeah. I don't know anyone who actually's gone go kart racing who doesn't enjoy it. And the the biggest complaint is like they don't go fast enough. Oh yeah. So if you get one of these shifter carts, they're you're, you're going to be blown away. I bet. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> are yeah, they hard to drive? They can be a handful if you, especially you know, on a, sh- a short track. That, and if you're like if you're going from something like a rental cart to do that, I mean, they're because yeah. they're three. They're exponentially faster in that in that you know short compact environment, right? Yeah. So if you're ripping around like a corner, are they like regular go karts? Will it just like spin out? Like, or will it? Could you flip it? I mean, they're probably less top heavy than than a rental cart, but they're I mean they're they're still a cart. But they have the tires that that they use are way more grippy. They're like every everything. 
Right. You know, they're not meant for like some seven-year-old kid trying to have a good time. Like they're meant for some serious well, racers. <laughs> well, I mean, those specific ones, but like like karting, like I started when I was six. So I didn't start out in chipped karts. We started out in usually single speed with the clutch carts that, so it's, you know, you have to gear, gear the, the car or the cart for the track and so it's all, but that's all, it's all evolved. I mean, it really usually starts with, a, you know, very simplified karting and then it just gets, you know, as, com- just like anything else. Sure. It gets as complicated as you want it to be. Crazy. And as expensive as you want it to be. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it could be yeah. an expensive hobby. There, right? There's Maybe. people I know that spend half a million dollars going karting. What? Yeah. What do they do for jobs? I mean, I feel like if you had, if you were spending that kind of dough and you had a full-time job, I mean, that just wouldn't work. Well, usually those people are, people are the dads that are paying for their their sons to go do stuff like that, right? You know, <laughs> nice. they, they're reliving their dreams through their son. Yeah, that's pretty common. Yeah. So speaking of cars, actually, funny enough, I was I read an article earlier that Uber they plan on having flying taxis by 2020. 20? Yeah. I was like, wait, are you serious? And it was well, it was an article, but then they had a video link to yeah. it, and it was a credible source, Wall Street Journal, which I mean, for the most part, they're somewhat credible, but. Yeah, I was just like, 2020, like, that's less than a year away. I mean, where, first of all, where the hell would they land? And these things, they looked big. Like, it was, it had, like, propellers, and it looked like a freaking just drone a big, on steroids. Yeah, I was going to say a big, big, big drone. Yeah. yeah. So, whatever they're doing is badass. So, I did not invest in Lyft, but I'm certainly investing in Uber. Because if that's the case, between Uber <laughs> Eats, Uber Freight, I mean, I Uber take, Flying Cars. I, I, I put money that Tesla would come out with that before. I know. Elon Musk, if you're listening, which you probably are. Get your shit together, buddy. Yeah. Because Uber's coming to take you over, bud. This Hyperloop is behind the times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, someone else I was actually listening to on the way in. So I listened to Joe Rogan. If you have time, like two and a half hours, because interviews are crazy. The one that he recently did with Kevin Hart. I mean, I'm yeah. a big comedy guy. Yeah. And so I was expecting it to just be like full of comedy. But Kevin Hart is a good, genuine dude who like, if you have time, anyone out there listening to Joe Rogan, do yourself a favor and listen to the Kevin Hart one. It it actually is very inspiring, and I was not expecting. I'm say he's almost become a an inspirational type guy in his later years. Like as he's gotten, you know, he, he started getting fit and started like really kind of fo- refocusing his life. So it's, it's been interesting. Yeah, because most of the time, and he's actually like pretty intelligent, or the way he comes across, anyways. Because like a lot of the movies that we've seen throughout no, the yeah, years, no, he comes across as like kind of an idiot, well, right? He's it like was a short guy. He played slapstick comedy, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But he has a new show on Netflix that just came out. I haven't watched it, but I heard it's pretty good. So, but anyway, I was just, I was listening and I was like, I wanted to mention it to you because I know you do listen to podcasts and stuff. And anyway, good episode to say the least. So talking about the cars, actually, it kind of leads into my next sort of, sort of question is you went to school, was it OU? Went to OU. OU, yes. and for mechanical engineering, Mechanical right? engineering, yes. So was that sort of, did that, your sort of your love for cars and mechanics and stuff, is that why? Or like what would end up making you go to OU for mechanical? It was pretty simple. It was in-state tuition versus looking at out-of-state. Okay. Uh, and it was a good school. Right. So the, I looked at Texas, A&M, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State, and then I looked at the prices, and then I looked at Oklahoma State and Oklahoma. Yeah. I went to tour on both, and I just felt like Oklahoma was more of a home for me. Nice, nice. So why mechanical engineering? It just, it, it was always, I almost, I knew that that was something I was going to do pretty much early on. My dad was a mechanical engineer, and, you know, the cars and everything kind of fell into that, fit into that path, if you will. Gotcha. Did you ever expect to be in the oil field, or were you wanted to do more something automotive? Not at all. Automotive? I wasn't interested in the oil field at all, growing up in Oklahoma, which is kind of surprising. Right. We didn't know that many people that were in it. 
and actually moved down here to work for the space center as a safety engineer for the space shuttle. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, for NASA? Yeah. Uh, in about oh, two yeah. weeks, and I realized that you know working for the government and you know punching a time clock and being a job that felt really redundant yeah. didn't really fit what I wanted to do. <laughs> right. That being said, the during the missions during the the shuttle operations. That, I mean, that was, it's truly awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but want, doing having a job that's only cool every once every three months for a week, yeah, <laughs> you, you're like, oh, I want to find something that's, you, you have a little more ownership. You feel like you're, com- you're actually contributing. Right. And that's one of the great things about the wolf field is the wolf field throws you the wolves, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's like, you're coming in. Oh, great. By the way, here's, you know, in the bit world, you know, here's, here's keys to a truck and, you know, Get after it. Get after it. Go deliver some some bits. Go talk to some, you know, company man, field, TDs, you know, mud engineers. Exactly. You know, right. It's it's on you to just go get make it happen. Right. You kind of have to be self motivated. Well, you do. Not even kind of. You have to be self motivated. You have to be willing to do your own research because a lot of times people just expect you to know things, and it's like, wait, I didn't have training in this, and so yeah. you have to like take it upon yourself to go make it happen and figure it out. It's kind of a common theme. It's like you know, some dude in the oil field. I don't know, just figure it out. You know, yeah. like, we're not going to teach you because you're just going to have to. We don't do have time it. to do that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Everything's about time and saving time. It's like, I'm not going to take time to teach you something. You just got to do it yourself. So, speaking of engineering, you actually, so again, you went down a pretty unique path sticking with a service company rather than an operator. So, why is that? Twofold. One was was opportunity. I mean, the, the service company job I found through a coworker at NASA and then a friend of his. He worked at Smith where where I started, so okay. that's how I got the that's how I got my effectively inroad into the oil and gas at all. I didn't honestly know much about service company versus operators versus. I just know he was like, I designed a drill bit, and you know, and in three months I get to see that drill bit and see it function and see it perform. And I was right. like, well, that sounds way cooler than feeling like I'm just a stamping off approval on you know space shuttle engine type thing. That it's not even my product. I'm just kind of yeah, that looks good. Right? No kidding. Oh, that makes sense. Would you ever go to the operator side of things? Yeah, it'd be and that mainly just for the the learning experience of it type thing. Yeah, uh, I'm not. A, I wouldn't say I'm ever opposed to it, but you know, I, I look. I try to look at jobs as you know, how much can I learn from the job opportunity that comes up. So that's that's. I mean, I think there's a lot of a, a bit of opportunity to learn a lot on that side because it's a side that I haven't been on. Yeah, right, so. absolutely. No, the more you're willing to learn and, and just gain information. I mean, like they always say, knowledge is power. And if you, you know, it's, it's interesting actually dealing with customers that let's say start off as on the operator side and then go to the service side to truly understand, like they typically know things, whether it be about drill, you know, drill bits, mud, geology, directional drilling, they have a fair idea, but for them to put, you know, put the time in, learn things and then go back to the operator side, it makes a huge difference. So likewise, you know, guys go from the service side into the operator side. It's like the guys that have seen both are typically... It's an excel. It is. Yeah. And in their... Well, I mean, Mike, sorry. Yeah. You know, perfect example. I mean, he spent his years, you know, on the, on the server side and he came in with a, a very unique perspective that was able to you know, streamline and lever, you know leverage his knowledge to improve the, his the business unit he was running in Oxy. Yeah, no, it, it makes a difference, and it makes it a little bit easier to deal with those types of folks. Not all the time, but generally speaking, it's because they understand both sides. 
they're they're able to take a step back and more so understand okay why are things happening the way they are and and negotiating sometimes a little bit more it's it's easier to facilitate rather than you know <laughs> you know i you know we come from the same cloth here you know we have to defend ourselves to the cows come homes a lot of times but either way before we get going to talk more about technology let's take a quick break if you'd like to support the show please subscribe and do me a huge favor and take a few minutes to leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to and again, if any you have any feedback, whether it's good or bad, I always welcome it and appreciate it. So please hit me up. And even on LinkedIn, I've had folks hit me up and just send me a note, you know, either thanking me or telling me I wasted an hour of their time. But either way, it helps me plan my business. So please hit me up and leave a review. So let's get going more about the drill bit side of things. Most people think of drill bits like the ones we use at home to drill holes in the walls through wood or whatever. So can you describe the type that we're referring to in the oil field? So I guess it's hard to talk about that without talking about the history of drill bits. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So early on, Howard Hughes developed the what was called the tricone bit, which is a basically a crushing and style style bit to to break rock. Fast forward, I guess over a hundred, maybe right around a hundred years, yeah, or so now, and we now use drill bits actually much like you would in your household environment, where we're, where it's more of a shearing action. Okay. Now, what's only what's driven that is is pure material science. Interesting. Uh, and because previously, that the way that the roller cones function was the only way we could we could fail thirty forty ksi rock or even fifteen. Right. Now we've got we've got diamonds that are strong enough and that can withstand the heat generated through a shearing action to that that we can. I mean, we pretty much, I bet the industries at this point is 95% PDCs. Right. Is uh, there, which is, fix, you know, a fixed cutter drill bit. Right. Is there any material out there that people are testing that's even stronger? Or is there, is that even something that is a demand? There's just nothing, there's nothing really known to man that, that's stronger than a diamond. The Now, uh, we use man-made diamonds. Mm-hmm. And, and with that, they we use a cobalt to center them to, to the substrate of the of the cutter itself. And so there's there's different, and then there's different grains, and there's 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 a lot of that actually goes into that diamond. Hmm. So because that is a, let's you know let's say a baking mixture as, as we were talking about with uh, the guys guys outside. Yeah, it's like just like it's a a baking mixture. You can change all the ingredients and get a different. You're going to get a different result. Interesting. So we're constantly evolving, you know grain size and all all these all these different things in, in the and how we make the the diamond cutters and uh, those themselves i mean really in the biggest technological leap that we've had over the last 20 years was in 2003 when the uh, deep leach patent came out okay so that was a huge step on that's when that's when you saw if you looked at the the market share of roller clones versus pdcs you saw it just shift and it's gone it's gone nothing but up for pdcs at that point in time Interesting. And that's mainly a function of just how hard the material is to be able to break any type of rock. So that came down to, it really came down to the thermal stability of the cutter. Ah. So cobalt having, being a different material than diamond. Sure. It has a different coefficient of thermal expansion. So for each degree that cobalt is raised and each degree diamond is raised, cobalt gets larger than diamond does. Ah. So what it does is it would spit off the diamond because it's, growing inside of the diamond, if you will. Oh, wow. So the leaching process removed that cobalt. Hmm. And by doing that, the thermal stability can't went through the roof. Wow. 
And so that's, you know, that's really one of the things we still struggle with today is thermal stability because we're, I mean, motors are getting, are getting stronger. They're getting faster. They're getting, we're getting, we're drilling larger hole sizes than we had before. And which means more radial velocity. So we're seeing, you know, we still fight because every time we make something that's, that's better than what's out there, then someone decides, oh, well, we'll spin it faster. Right. We'll push it harder. Yeah. Well, we're, we're good in the oil field. We're good at pushing things to the limits, aren't we? Yeah. And then you, you kind of, you have to, I mean, we can be as proactive as we want to be, or you know, we try to be, but I mean, the industry is evolving at a rapid pace all the time. So you're just constantly having to keep up and, and design. I mean, same thing on the drilling fluid side. It's like, you know, just when we think we have it, then an operator comes and says, well, I want to completely change my well design and you're gonna have to figure out a way to do this, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's like, okay, back to the drawing board. So I would imagine it's similar in the, in the drill bit world as well. Oh, absolutely. There's a, it's a never ending cycle of development that for sure. Right. I mean, do you ever see, and this is something that I've recognized now I'm, you know, pushing, you know, 12 or 13 years in the oil field, but are there technologies that came out in the past that sort of resurface? I mean, is that a thing for you guys or is it, is it always changing completely different or? I would say, you know, for us, there's not a lot of necessarily technologies that we're going back on. I would say maybe from a design perspective, there are things that we we had the ability to do or we tried early on that failed. But now we have better materials. And so those things actually can work now. Ah, that makes sense. So that, you know, because really at the end of the day, the, the cutter, the diamond is always the, the limit, right? That mm. That is what's cutting the rock. When it fails, so as we can make the bit as aggressive as the rock allows us to make it. Interesting. Okay. So you mentioned a little bit about the different types. You mentioned roller cone and, and PDC. Are there different types beyond that? I mean, what what are your, I mean, is there, I mean I've mean, i been on rigs and I've seen different types. I mean, how many different types of bits are there? So the main three types are natural diamond bits, which are, are usually impact bits. So they're natural diamond impregnated into you know a matrix of powder that is think of it as a grinding wheel if you okay will. so that's how they function usually that's what we use to do, drill granite i mean you'll see them on turbines that spin you know 1500 2000 rpm that's you know even that's even because of the technological advancements of PD, pdcs you're seeing that market even shrink more uh, more i mean I haven't heard of a turbine around in a while, but of course, they've been spending been spending a lot of time in West Texas, so <laughs> yeah, that's not really the, that was never their home in the first place. Sure, sure, but yeah, and then so really roller cones, PDCs, and then uh, impregs, and you're starting to see. I mean, you've got Hughes has a bit that's in between a PDC and a roller cone, and then you're starting to see people play around with really, really get aggressive with the roller with the the PDC what we can do with how we lay out cutters and the other things we put in, in the bids. I mean, you're just seeing people put movable parts in bids, which is actually what we got, a, one of the reasons we wanted to get away from roller cones. Right. But is it because we didn't want parts to stay yeah, in the hole? Just, so yeah. you're, you're starting to see some people just come out with new ideas that, you know, they're trying just to see. So you're seeing a lot of experimentation at this point in time. And then the market's driving that because we have to, to be successful at the what we've had of what fifty five to seventy dollar oil, yeah, for the past year or so. I mean, you to be successful, you, we have to drive down cost, right? So that kind of leads me to my next question. 
does the price of oil or the price of commodities determine how you guys run your business? I mean, does it affect you guys? I mean, because I mean, I'd imagine your raw materials to design and make bits are coming from somewhere. And so does that play a role in for you guys? So if we're if we're talking about each bit manufacturer is going is going to have a different answer and a different approach to a downturn. Sure. You know, at Altera, we run pretty lean. Our goal in a downturn is to focus on a customer and providing the customer what they need and to keep development. And the, a lot of the the lean systems that we have in place are what what allow us to do that. Okay. Now that being said, I mean, you look at what's happened with steel tariffs and you look at what ha- what's happened with a you know a lot of things in the, in the world economies i mean they've you know our costs have gone up just because commodity prices have gone up and with a lot of the materials that we use right okay no that makes sense so kind of going back to the different types of drill bits does it matter when selecting a different drill bit i mean i'm assuming a lot of it depends on what type of rock you're drilling right absolutely so are there like soft rock versus hard rock? I mean, how do you kind of work through that? So with if we're looking at, I guess we'll we'll start with the, the roller cone example being right now, if, if a roller cone is used, it's usually used to drill up float equipment or drill up, drill up basically not anything, remedial work, stuff that's not rock. Okay. Or it's used to bail out a curve that got off that's, that, that wasn't building correctly because Roller cones are still the, still there because they roll. Their reactive torque is very slow, mm. which makes it easy for a directional driller to to point and and drill. Now ah, they're okay. all, also much slower, so we try to avoid that. Right. So then, when we get in the PDC world, a lot of the times we talk about blade count and cutter size. All cutter size really gets you is increased exposure, so your depth of cut can be larger. It also limits how many cutters you can put on a bit, but just like a smaller cutter you can put more on there right and then blade count in the same vein i mean the smaller your blade count the fewer cutters you're going to have on there just if you're keep if, if the density per blade is all is is the same right makes sense so that's kind of we t- we tend to generalize it like that but it's also an extremely poor way for us to do it right i'd imagine there's a lot of factors that yes. come into play so, so yeah you'll see blade count and cutter size are the things that you know as an industry, we tend to decide, and then we've got 15 other levers that we can pull on that make more of an impact than you know those one things. And so we can have the same bit, the same bit type being a five blade with 60 mil cutters. We can have one that's super aggressive, and we can we can have one that's extremely passive. Right. So there's there's just that's why we you know that really a holistic approach of understanding exactly what we need and knowing, like you said. What rock we're drilling, the applica- the application of you know what's the VHA look like, or is it an S type well? Are we drilling a curve? Are we in the lateral? All all those things come into play when so when selecting the right bit for that application. I got you. So you actually spent some time designing bits, did you not? Because you hadn't been just a salesman this whole time. You were actually involved with the nuts and bolts of like coming up with certain bits, right? Correct. So I spent a couple years with Smith. I started actually in roller cone design which was was a really great great group of guys and I learned a lot from those guys and they've pretty much left now 
they left the oil field and started 11 below brewery so i don't know if you're... oh nice <laughs> so <laughs> you didn't you didn't want to join them in that uh, endeavor I didn't, I didn't have the money to at that time when oh, i was still a kid yeah good point hey, they made their they made their fortune in the oil field and they're like yeah i'm gonna do something that i'm passionate about and that's a drinking beer yeah exactly yeah, well, yeah. i mean they didn't they make a fortune but they, they they had enough that they could <laughs> enough to put it to bed and start a brewery yeah obviously. they could ask you know put their put their time away and go to go do what they were you know passionate about which is you know making beer dude that's badass where is the brewery at 290 in Bowie 8. Really? Okay, yeah, well, so. we're giving you a free plug, so go out yeah. there and drink some beer on Sterling. <laughs> <laughs> mention, mention my name and let me know if I get a free case of beer or something. Yeah, exactly. But so, no. so you did that with Smith. How was that experience? Tell us a little bit about designing bits. So that was a, a really good experience, especially on the, like I said, on the roller cone side uh, with that group because we're so open and con- but also connected. I always like to say that our design reviews if someone from the outside was was watching it, they'd think we hated each other. And then we would want to go out and have beers afterwards because, but you know, there's just a lot of passion in that. Yeah. And then you know, we the Rollercone and the PTC group merged the design groups, and so at that point in time, I actually didn't design a Rollercone again. It was all PTCs at that point in time because that's where all the focus on development was. Right. Uh, and actually, I went to your your native homeland was the region I was given. Whenever we did that, so I was spending a week a, mo- a month up in Calgary. Okay, I didn't know that. So, which which a lot was a lot of fun. Where'd you stay downtown? Yeah, because our office was walkable from the Double Tree or whatever. Yeah, down there. So nice. It was it was really nice. Okay, I didn't know that you'd spend time up there. That's great. So I, I did that for a while, and then I, I did field engineering, which is, has probably like ninety different names in the oil field, but for in the drill bit world, it's field application product development and that's all what it really is you have a region it's your job to develop product for that you then put your needs together submit those needs to the design engineer what i was doing which i think having the obviously coming from that i knew the tools they the, the tools and information they needed to make the best product so it really helped me you know do well in that right and then it was actually shortly after that i was put in-house at oxy okay so what was your biggest, and you kind of touched on it, but what was your biggest takeaway from designing bits to now working in sales? I mean, obviously it takes a, they're two almost completely different types of people, right? Like the engineer, yeah. the designer to the go out customer relations, business development, which now you're in and you do extremely well. What What's the biggest value from having that experience that allows you to be successful today? I really think it's being able to explain the why the changes we make in, in the drill bit and in the product are effective and, and having having that background of knowing why I made those changes. And then I can explain that to the customer of this is going to work because you know this was the failure we were having. This is what we did to resolve it. And we've done this previously. We have the, you know, the history to show that this fun, this works. Right. So Smith, was that, were they Slumberjay at the time, or were they by, on themselves? Because Smith is a Slumberjay company, are they? Correct. So, so I was there when Slumberjay bought Smith. I, okay. I, I, I want to say it was like two years and two years. Okay. So what what's the biggest difference you notice from working at a major like Slumberjay to now working at a mid-sized company like Altair? And they're not Altair is not public, are they? Well, so we recently got purchased by Blackstone. Interesting. Is, okay. Um, which is, you know, obviously they're not a small private equity company. That's right. I did read about that. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, the culture still remains with Altera, right? Correct. I mean, we're, I mean, we're, we're backed by them. They, they, they have a majority ownership in us. 
Gotcha. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's a board of directors and they help maybe provide some direction to the company, but it's still Altair's leadership that drives, you know, who we are and what we do. Right. So what do you say, what would you say the biggest difference is between working for, you know, a slumberjay to working to a company of the size right now without getting into the specifics, maybe more so from just a cultural standpoint? So I'd say so actually from a cultural standpoint, you'll see the, the, the larger the company, they tend to focus on, you know, having a better technology or like develop, developing big technologies that might m- move the move the industry forward. Where a smaller company is, is very customer focused. It's like, how do I solve your problem today? Right. And then so like Altera w- would say like, I want to make a lot of small changes that end up to a huge cumulative change over time. Where somebody like Slumberjay is like, oh, we're going to develop a tool that that doesn't have in, that replaces mud motors. And that's an RSS. Like they're going to come out with, you know, rotary steerable tools and, you know, stuff that takes a, a lot more technical resources, a lot more upfront investment. Right. But obviously they, they're both, both aspects move the needle in the industry. Of course. It's just, I, I would, that would be my takeaway is that one, the smaller the company, the more the, I feel like they're focused on, you know, how, solving the customer's problem as quickly as possible. Right. Where the other one might be, like how do we how are we making the next step on rotor steerables or motors or you know whatever it is that that, that company's focused on right right and and both is equally important absolutely we, right. I mean, we, we wouldn't be able to function i think as an industry without having you know the that focus on each side right and i guess it depends you know depending on the customer and depending on you know the scope of work that they have there may be a value put more on one thing than the other so let's talk a little bit more talking about advancements. What would you say the biggest advancement in technologies been with regards to bits in your career? Have you noticed anything revolutionary from the time that you've been in, involved with bits? So I think one of the probably revolutionary what's been impressive over this really the, the large performance jump I've seen has been this most recent downturn, which I don't know if you can argue whether we're still in or out, but <laughs> right. we're, still, we're still in it. If I feel like in effect, we're acting like we're in it because we're, it still feels like crunch time, right? Yeah. It feels like we're in the, the, the downturn hangover right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the advancements in motors, I believe, have driven a response by, by drill bit companies to, to respond to the more powerful motors and how to withstand those. So one of the things that's come into play, which wasn't an issue previously, was hydraulics and hard rock. It used to be hydraulics were something you were concerned about in soft shales and you know sticky, gummy environments. Well, when you're drilling a you know a hard rock, even if it's a 30 ksi limestone at 400 foot per hour, it's suddenly an issue again because it's all about how fast you're drilling it. Right, and you're drilling it that fast because you've got you know we're we're seeing people put so much more energy into the into the, the system into the uh, into the bit now and so we're having to respond with that and and there's a lot of things that we're doing at Altera to to be able to respond to that whether it's hydraulic efficiency or you know cutter layouts and stuff like that or and then evolutions and cutters to be able to withstand the the extra energy that's being added to the system right so we we've made that step but i there's there's a few technologies that that Altera that that have been able to that have helped us out with that. Split blade being one. There's a few, you know, other things that we've 
we've got going on that that definitely help us respond to that. But that's what we're kind of responding to is this um, the other changes in the industry, and not necessarily drill bits themselves sure. evolving. The the interesting thing is if you take take that today's drill bit and put it on a older motor, an older system, it's like you, you can't hurt it. <laughs> okay. Like it's because it's been, we've, we made them so much more robust. Right. And so uh, that's what, it, that's, that's really, I guess the, the easiest way to explain the, the changes that I've seen recently is our response to all the other technology and tools that have, that have come out there. So Sterling, why are companies wanting to continue to put more and more energy, you know, into the bid and the motors? I mean, to me, it's obvious you just want to drill faster. But I mean, is there anything else that would play a role into why they just want to, you know, just cram the shit out of things? <laughs> For <laughs> I mean, lack of better words. At the end of the day, it's it's functioning, functionally working. And okay. that we're taking more of a physics-based approach to, uh, to how we're drilling. And we're realizing that we've got tools and we're looking at things and like how we limit d- dysfunction and things like that. And what we're seeing is that you know, weight is not a bad thing. Right. Uh, and then, you know, keeping, keeping PDC bits engaged is there is the way to, to make them survive. You know, we can, we can make a bit as, dur- as durable as possible, but at the end of the day, we've got, even if the bit is 800 pounds, which right. some of the, some of the bits out there are, are even if the bits are that heavy, you've got 250,000 pounds plus of drill string above, you know, above this, what's going to dictate what happens. Right. So makes sense. Hmm. So I know we're getting close to the end here, but I have a two-part question. What does the future of drill bits look like? And do you think AI or big data will play a role in bit design to essentially maybe revolutionize or, or create a whole new bit that otherwise would have never existed or even thought of if it wasn't for you know the, the amount of data that we collect on a daily basis, which is astronomical? So I guess there, there's two ways to look at it, and 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 that kind of goes back to our our holistic approach to uh, doing business. Is like we don't just look at the bit itself. I mean, we have uh, dedicated engineers who are looking, providing parameter ro- parameter roadmaps and things like that. So I think where we'll really see AI come into play, or something like those type of software technologies is analyzing the data we have and providing us results in a shorter amount of time. Right. The, the the goal is really to be able to find that dysfunction, identify it, and then remove it almost in a real-time situation. So that way, because if we can eliminate the dysfunction, we can keep drilling and we can drill faster. Right. So I think the future of, of bit design and the fu- future of bits will be largely driven, I think, We've got the term that's been thrown around, smart bits. Okay. But there will be a time where we'll be able to talk to, the the bit will have vibration sensors, accelerometers, and it will be able to talk to, you know, the the entire system, right? So it'll be able to say, this is what's going on, and the system will be able to adjust the parameters ah, to to eliminate that. I see. So as far as bit design, how that affects that is that we'll probably be able to get more aggressive because we won't be in, in dysfunction as much. Sure. Which means we'll only be able to drill faster as well. But that's also, I mean, what, one of the things that we're working on is, you know, there's that, that smart bit and, and then, but to do that right a lot right now, you've got a wire drill pipe, you've got to have. Mm, it's a huge investment. Yeah, it's a huge investment where there are things that we can look at even from the surface that we can start identifying uh, 
and and we are in the, the we're already doing this as an industry. We're identifying dysfunctions as quickly and as easily as we can at the surface, and then turn in. But we're doing it manually, where the driller or the directional driller or the company manager, we're like, hey, we need to change, make this make this change. Right. So right now we're we're, we're doing that still at a surface surface level. But that I think the the big jump will be whenever we're able to see this function and that you know then boom the top drive slows down right you know to mitigate it or speeds up or adds more weight or all the changes the parameters right it's like taking auto driller to the next level yeah it's and it's got to be on a you know almost the, the, the auto driller to that phase is yeah. a huge jump. Oh, I bet. But I mean, ultimately, that's where it's heading, right? I mean, guys are, I mean, the goal is to drill wells from Houston or whatever office people are operating out of. It's like, you know, if they're looking at this data and and the rig or top of the knows, okay, more weight on bit, less weight on bit, you know, more rotary, less rotary, more pump, less pump, just like at a split second of changing it, hell, you'd, you'd be like, guys in the DJ drilling 20,000 foot wells in one run, which I still don't get how they're doing it, but it's amazing. Uh, Correct. I mean, that's that's something that if you would have told me that we'd be able to drill, we've done a 22,000 foot well and, you know, on one BHA with one bit that came out looking brand new. That's incredible. Yeah. Like, like 20,000 feet, like I wouldn't even know, like if you look at a map of I-10, like where, how far would that go from like, let's say Katie Mills Mall into I mean, it's a, the energy it's a four mile well. That's insane. Four that miles was, is a well, lot. And then it was a three mile lateral. So and they, I think it was 7,500 foot, you know, vertical. So it's over four miles yeah. that we're, that we're drilling, you know, to, and then, you know, bits coming out and, and go shape. I mean, that, that's a unique environment and sure. All the stars align when, when that, that happens. that being said, if you would have told me that five years ago, I'd probably been like, nah, there's no way. Right. Well, I would imagine the percentage of wells that are doing that are slowly increasing to which in five years, if we continue to advance in technology exponentially, hell, you never know, maybe six out of 10 wells you are doing it. I mean, think how much faster and how much more productive we'll be. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Absolutely. The recount will probably drop. But. And I think that's where, I mean, where your guys' technologies come into play because you guys are eliminating casing strings. Right. And when you guys eliminate casing strings, that means we have the ability to keep drilling. Of course, uh, yeah, yeah. As a drill bear. And so in taking in the DJ, what used to be a three-string well is now, a, you know, monobore surface and and one string. So, yeah, you know, though, you know, it's all it's all in hand. Like we we're talking about the technology all play on each other. And, you know, OK, well, now we have to drill 15,000 feet because it's a monobore. So that so because of your guys' advancement in technology, we've had to go and push ourselves to respond to that. Right. Yeah, no, it's drilling is cool. I mean, it's exciting. I love hearing about it. I love, you know, just hearing guys like yourself and buddies that are in the directional side. Uh, you know, we're, we're making some leaps and bounds on the directional side. So let's dial it back from the t- sort of the technical stuff. I want to ask you a personal question. Do you have any daily habits or routines that help create a recipe for success in both your personal and your career? So I'm a, a big list guy. <laughs> okay, nice. Someone so, actually, the lady I interviewed yesterday was, said the same thing, and she's—I I don't know if she's an engineer, but I typically know engineers like to write things down and have lists. So yeah, so I mean, uh, to keep myself organized, uh, definitely big list guy. As you can see, I've got you know engineering, basically engineering paper here, that, <laughs> yeah, which makes it the easier. only salesman that has an engineering pad yeah. paper to write notes on. Uh, what a well, geek! <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is everyone at Altera loves these things. So oh, they're have, great. Yeah, I mean, I did a. Uh, my two-year engineering program up in Canada, and 
I mean, I love that engineering paper. It was amazing. I don't use it anymore because I don't typically write too much stuff, you know, with computers and phones and stuff. But I always got a notepad. But uh, <laughs> I give it up to you with the engineering paper, man. It's awesome. I was, yeah, I was on the, outside of, you know, as a, as a daily routine, I try to read. I try to, you know, some, something that's, that gets somewhat motivational and also you know, something okay. I'm, I, I can learn from. Like self-growth but, type stuff? Yeah. So whether it's a, you know, something like a Simon Sinek or two, one of the books I just finished was uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Okay. And so it, they're just, you know, a lot of times they're business-focused books. Sure. But I like the ones that are either psychologically related and, and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, which goes back, I guess, in the, like the other thing is, and I'm not always the best at it, but a lot of times listening to music. Yeah. I know it sounds uh, cheesy, but we have to get it. We do such a, we're so caught up in our phones in our minds that if we don't, music's a good way to separate yes. ourselves. So, so like, you know, you can reset yourself just by, hey, don't listen to that, that YouTube or maybe even podcast for sure. Even though it's like, you know, just listen to music and just enjoy the road, drive, you know, yeah, enjoy your, your trip down Hardy. You know what? So it's interesting you say that because music has been around since the beginning of time, right? Like people smashing rocks together Correct. was probably the first boy band. And I say that because... You know, for a Isn't long time. Is that the name of the war band? Because if not, it really should be. <laughs> yeah. People yeah. smashing rocks together. Yeah, exactly. But no, so like just talking about music, our brains are wired such that it's all frequency and waves, right? So, yeah. you know, a lot of times if you listen to a certain song, either it brings back memories, it either puts you in a good mood, puts you in kind of like a weird mood. You know, people listen to certain songs when they're working out. People like certain songs when they're trying to study or, you know, focus. Yeah, and, and so, you know, it's interesting you say that because most people are like, you know, I'm a sponge for information. I'm either listening to podcasts or I'm listening to audiobooks or I'm reading and it's just like so much freaking overload. It's like, yeah, just like get back to, you know, the fundamentals, listen to a good song, clear your head, recharge your brain. Yeah. No one can, uh, you can't accept knowledge and retain it if your brain's clouded because you're thinking about nine different things. Right. I kind of look at it as like when you're, when you're on your computer and you've been working all day or whatever and you've got like 18,000 tabs open, sometimes <laughs> the best thing to do is just restart that son of a bitch and then like reset it because yeah. it's just like too much, right? Yeah, I so was like, focusing on this and this and this, this no, yeah. one thing at a time. And sometimes music, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that. I got so caught up in listening to just podcasts and, and listening to things I was like, I need more information. And But now I make a point of listening to certain, you know, songs or music and stuff like that when I'm driving because it's, yeah, it's calming and it kind of just helps me relax. And it's like, okay, like decompress, like relax, enjoy. Yeah, we're in Houston. I mean, you can't, and being a salesman, you can't listen, not listen to gangster rap. On <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, some of that old school Houston rap. Yeah, exactly. What we're talking about. Now, so, Travis Scott is coming, you know, he's doing well now with the new school stuff. So I give it up to him. Well, look, we're getting close here. I'd want to ask you one more question before we cut off here. Would you rather fight a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? That's a riddle. Think about it. It's a lot of ducks. Or it's one big duck. I'm going one. Just one duck-sized horse? One, one yeah. So you, <laughs> one on one, bring it. I thought it was one horse-sized duck. It is. One horse-sized yeah, duck one or horse-sized duck. 100 duck-sized horses. I'd rather, I'd rather have one thing to, to, go, to take after. Okay. Well, you've heard it here, Then a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> so here's C. Sterling fighting a duck. You know, it's because I put that idea in his head. Well, look, we're getting, we're wrapping up here. I just want to talk a little bit about our sponsor giveaway, Tendeca. They're known for their innovation in advanced completions and technology. They're giving away a mini portable 
projector perfect for home theater boardroom office and pocket video click the link in the show notes for a chance to win some events coming up we got the oil and gas global network monthly happy hour the next one's april 30th at the canon we're throwing a launch party for the newest podcast called permian perspective that's sponsored by bigger hughes GE on Tuesday, April 23rd from 6 to 9 at the Midland Beer Garden. If you can't make it, we're streaming it live on Facebook, so be sure to check us out. we got the API Sporting Clay shoot. That's May 4th. And, of course, the big old OTC. Everyone's going to be here for that, so be sure to be on the lookout for the OGGN crew. We're going to be running around, having fun, recording podcasts. And, look, if you have any questions or you want to shout out, give me a shout. Hit me up on LinkedIn or visit oilandgasonshore.com. Sterling, thanks again for joining me today. What's the best way for people to reach out to you to get to know more about you or if they have any drill bit questions or just to want to know more about Altera? If they want to, they can either reach out to me through srobinson at altera.com cool. or through through LinkedIn. I mean, whatever yeah. someone's more comfortable okay. with. Well, we'll put both those. Well, we'll put your LinkedIn in the show notes and then we'll put the Altera website in the show notes as well. So again, thanks everyone for listening. That's a wrap. And always remember, folks, when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Ooh-wee. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 